0: back to Truth and Justice. Uh, you may be noticing that my voice doesn't sound as crisp as usual. That's because I'm on a uh, cell phone calling in today for our Friday follow-up. As we mentioned last week, I have been out of town all week. Uh, and it's, it's created some complications for us in the fact that we had to pre-record several episodes, uh, which we're going to get into uh, as we get into the episode today and start answering some questions. Uh, but this is the funny follow-up for episode number 518, which was Damian Eckel's Alibi. And it's the part one of the series. And I know that it generated a lot of questions and a lot of discussion. And we're kind of having to backtrack because Mike and I recorded this well over a week ago. Uh, we actually already have next week's recorded, which I'm going to talk a little bit about as we move on. Because there's there's some new information that we've come across since we recorded that episode that's not included and so, but we'll talk about all that later. Let's go ahead for now, Mike. Let's just get started.
1: All right, Bob. Sounds good to me. All right. First, before we get into the questions, I got to call you out. It looks like when you ran your alibi experiment, you got your own timeline wrong for what you did last Wednesday.
0: Yeah, so you busted me out during edits when you pointed out that, as you told me, I lied about my alibi. <laughs> uh, so, and I did. I completely lied about it. And it was, it was unintentional. But what Mike figured out was when he was editing and thinking about it was that, that when we're talking about in the beginning of the episode where I said, you know, this is what I was doing Wednesday night, I would have, you know, fed the kids and then went outside and worked for a little bit and then went in and put Parker to bed and then watched TV with my wife that's what we normally do. But what Mike remembered...
1: Was that you actually had an appointment the following Thursday, and so you worked really late that night.
0: That's right. So I, I had an appointment, and we had to record an episode bright and early Thursday morning, and I had to write the outline. Actually, what had happened that Wednesday night is much was the same. I, I fed the boys, did their homework, went out and worked, did go in and tuck Parker to bed. But then I came after my wife got home, I went back out to the studio and I worked until almost one thirty in the morning that night, I was out there by myself, which would have looked really bad if, you know, some crime had been committed because I told them I was in bed with my wife at nine. And in fact, by nine o'clock, I was unaccounted for. I was, my time was unaccounted for because I was out in the studio by myself for the next three or four hours.
1: Busted. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's funny because you really, you know, in order to recall those events, you really kind of fell back on what your normal routine is on Wednesday. And it just so happened, you know, what you were doing that particular Wednesday was was an oddity.
0: Yeah, it was out of routine. And and it, it, it's also interesting for me to realize how easy this is to happen to someone, because, you know, it just that doesn't happen often. I'm not I'm not always out working in the studio until, you know, eleven thirty, twelve o'clock at night that one night I just happened to be, and that happened to be the one night that we decided to try to recall for the podcast, uh, basically, you know, when we're ta- discussing alibis. So, you know, it could be a fluke or a coincidence, but it's, it's pretty easy for that to happen.
1: Absolutely. Okay, let's move on. Okay. So after this week's episode, it seems like Damien has a pretty solid alibi. Is there any evidence so far that gives you pause or challenges the credibility of these statements?
0: Yeah, there's a few things, and some of them, we already knew, and and I wanted to discuss here in the follow-up, and then we've had some information come out since we recorded the episode. Not that the information just came out. It's just I had, I had missed it or misinterpreted it. But to start with, one issue uh, with the alibi is the fact that when Pam Hutchison, Damien's mother, gave her first statement to police, which was either on the 12th or the 16th. It's transcribed as the 16th, but in the recording they say it's the 12th. But in that statement... She is telling the detective that her husband moved out of the house on the Tuesday before the crime occurred. That he had moved out, and that Damien was really upset about it. But then she goes on to say that you know the the next day that Joe, her husband, was was there, and, and he testified that he, you know, he was there hanging out on the couch all day because he worked the night shift, and then you know they they went and picked Damien up, and then they went and went to the Sanders house you know, when they, when the Sanders had went to the casino. So the issue is those seem to conflict. She sounds, she says that, you know, by nine o'clock at night, he had packed up, moved all his stuff out on Tuesday, but then on Wednesday he's with the family all day. So it could mean a number of things. It could mean that she got her days mixed up on the trip to the Sanders or the day that her, her husband moved out. It could be that he did in fact move out and just came back the next day. I mean, that's not entirely uncommon for something like that to happen. We don't really know, but it's a it's a conflict. Now, later, she corrects that or changes that and says that she must have got her days mixed up and that it was actually the ninth when he moved out. But that was well down the road. Mm-hmm. be honest, I don't I don't know. You know, it's it was pointed out by several people on the on the discussion boards on the fan page that, you know, what are the odds that she if it was indeed the ninth that she mixed that up on the twelfth three days later? I mean, I agree that's unlikely. You know, But the ninth is a date she's trying to recall months later. I don't know. I think that maybe maybe it happened earlier and he had come moved back in and she had the dates mixed up. I don't really know. I, I don't know the, the circumstances, but it's certainly enough to give some pause to the credibility of, of their statements. But in the same same regard, that's why when we're investigating uh, anything, but it, but even an alibi, as I always said, the alibi doesn't the strength in an alibi doesn't lie in the suspect. And it also often doesn't hold any weight, especially with a jury, with the people closest to them. You know that those are the people that you can say, "Oh, they would lie for them." Mm-hmm. That's why, in in that episode, in in my investigation into the alibi, we work out in concentric circles and try to confirm and get a better picture of what happened. Because if the person is actually innocent of the crime, then again, the day would mean nothing to them. And and I've, I did see a lot of discussion from people on the fan page who tried to recreate the experiment, and, and just about everybody said they struggled and mixed things up. And as you, as we just heard, I struggled badly. I was completely wrong about what I did on that day. But that's why we you know we work out in concentric circles. We we try to get to a point where we reach people who are far enough removed that are not willing to lie under oath, uh, especially about a potential child killer. To somebody who's through they're not close to you know i mean you'd like to think that even a parent wouldn't but you know a parent might you know to, to protect their kid I, I don't know what i would do in that situation if one of my kids was accused of something like this you'd like to think you do the right thing but it's your kid too but, but but in any case you work your way out in those concentric circles and what you look for or what i look for are, are good memory markers things that can be verified and that's as we as we as we work our way out, we come to the Beverly Hills 90210 episode. We come to the trip to the Splash Casino, and that's why we then you know go to the newspapers and look and and verify. And we went on Callahan's and verified that there was an episode on at seven o'clock that night of 90210. And then we go to Sanders, Mr. Sanders' testimony that. The money was won in the casino by his friend, and then we go listen to her testimony, and she's got tax receipts showing it that day. And, and so, we, as we say, we look at the preponderance of evidence. If we're looking at it through unbiased eyes and trying to figure out what happened on that night, where was Damien Eccles at 7 p.m. on May 5th, 93? All of the evidence seems to point to him being at the Sanders house on that day. But the negatives of that particular part of the alibi are, of course, the fact that his
2: mother said that his
0: dad moved out the day before, and so that's a bit of a problem. But in order for that to really be a problem, what we have to say is that she got everything else wrong and got that right, which is a possibility. And, and then also, the sister, Michelle, got everything wrong, and the dad got everything wrong, and Jennifer Sanders got everything wrong, and Stacy Sanders got everything wrong, and mrs sanders when she got home the next day got everything wrong and the mckays across the street got everything wrong and and it's just a a whole lot of so it's it's when you when you look at it and it's a it's a conflict but then you think well what's more likely that she got that detail wrong and everybody else corroborates all the rest of the story all the way down to the tv episodes and you know the receipts from the splash Casino. Or is it likely that she got that right and all that stuff is wrong? And then, and, and if that's true, then that would have to mean almost that everyone lied, because it's you know everybody told the same story, the exact which is pretty impressive. If you're trying to get people to lie to keep them all consistent, right? Yeah, and then and then for you know the Sanders aren't interviewed. Jennifer Sanders isn't interviewed until four months later, and her only memory marker is you know she thinks it was the prom episode of Beverly Hills Nine Hundred Two and Zero, but the that came on on the night they were there. Well, that's pretty impressive for her to remember that from, you know, cause there was only, I think one, one or two more episodes that season after that. And she remembers, you know, that that's what was happening when they stopped by. It's a pretty good memory marker. Uh, another thing that I wanted to, I don't even know if clear up is the right word, but, uh, officer McKay, which we had stated. And, and at this point we, I'll warn you, we've already recorded the next episode that's going to drop on Sunday. We did that well before before I went out of town. And you'll hear me refer to several times the you know the West Memphis police officer McKay's family that confirmed the alibi and what's their motive. Is it turns out I I don't think that he's a police officer. And there's there's some confusion around Officer McKay in the fact that, it's, you know, on Callahan's website and Jive Puppy in several places, even in Mar uh, The Devil's Knot book, a bunch of places. They talk about Officer McKay who helped remove the bikes from the bayou and then put him in a truck and drove them out of there. Well, and, and and there's a picture of him wearing what looks to be a police uniform with a caption that says Officer McKay, but he's putting it into a pet control uh, or animal control truck. Oh. And yeah, so that's I, I didn't I didn't warn you about that. Yeah, I, I've just within the last 12 hours figured that out from some discussions on face on Facebook. And so I I think he might have been an animal control officer and not a police officer. And I haven't been, of course, in my office where I have all my resources there to do the research to figure that out. But that seems to be the case. The general consensus seems to be that he is not a West Memphis police officer. I don't know why <laughs> the newspapers, the books all chose to refer to him as Officer McKay. And then, of course, if you Google his name, I do feel better about the fact that I'm not the only person to potentially misinterpret that because there's all kinds of essays and blogs and stuff written about the case that i just right before we got on recorded google just to see if there's anything else out there and there are several places where he's referred to as west memphis police officer ricky mckay so but it's one of those things where you know something gets said once twice three times and it becomes fact especially on the internet but i do want to point that i mean i don't think it it doesn't hurt the the credibility, but it definitely takes some of the the steam out of it you know if if he is if he was indeed a West Memphis police officer, it's far less likely that his wife and daughter are going to lie for the potential child murderer that they've never met, as opposed to if he was a West Memphis dog catcher it could be a different story still it you got to ask yourself is you know is someone willing to lie under oath? or, you know, give sworn testimony to a police officer about uh, the, the most horrific child murders to, in the state of Arkansas ever for someone you never met. It seems unlikely. And, and well, I'm sure we'll get into more of your questions. I probably just walked over half of them.
1: Oh, no, it's all right. I've got plenty of them.
0: OK, uh, but, but we'll get into there are indications of of truthfulness in a lot of the statements that are given to the, to the police during this investigation. Uh, And we'll get into all that in a little bit, but I'll I'll see where you're going to go. And then I'll remind me to come back to that if you don't have questions and hit on it.
1: Okay. First, I want to clear up the uh, TV guide schedule situation. A lot of listeners on social media were sort of compiling resources and trying to figure out uh, where they could find information regarding 902 being on uh, the night of May 5th. And it all kind of came to a head when Allie Marie posted the TV guide that she found from the newspaper at, I believe, her local library. So does that kind of prove to us and the listeners that 90210 was, in fact, on that night at that time?
0: Well, I, we already knew that it was on at that night at that time. Basically, you know, on on Callahan's, they had the original West Memphis Evening Times on the site. So we could see right there on the TV guide that it was on. I think the question that, that came up or the question that I had was, you know, later there was the whole log book from the casino that indicated that the DeWitts had gone to the casino on Sunday, May 9th. And with three guests and perhaps that was the day that all of this actually occurred on Sunday. So what I wanted to know was is was there any chance and other listeners wanted to know too, was there any chance that there was a rerun of nine oh two one oh that would have aired on Sunday? So it could have been Sunday. And so I, I think it was Allie had checked checked into that too through like microfiche or whatever at, at the library and found that it, it did not air on Sunday. There was no nine oh two one oh on that day. So that's out. Uh, but then there's there's more confusion that comes in because if you look at IMDb and or Wikipedia, both of those two resources show that there was no episode of 90210 on May 5th. Now those are you know user generated sites, uh, so that there could be mistakes, but it you know it shows there's an episode on May on April 28th and an episode on May 12th. There's no episode on the 5th. That that was raised and, and brought up. Now, again, we had the local newspaper showing that it was on that night. But you know, then the question was, was it a rerun or anything? So then Allie went back and looked at the week before the April 28th newspaper because, you know, they have a blurb in there that shows what the episode is about. And there was an episode on the 28th. It was a different episode than the one that was on the 5th. And it's a different episode than the one that was on the next week, the 12th. Uh, when we go back to the actual sources, uh, I think she even pulled up a, an old TV guide cover from the next week, from May 8th to the next week, where it showed what episode was going to air that week. That lined up with what was in the newspaper for the 12th. Uh, and then when you look at the IMDb's or whatever and see the episode right before that, is the episode that did air on the 5th. And if that didn't confuse you, then I wasn't trying hard enough. So, <laughs> <laughs> I just confused myself. Yeah. Essentially... We've we've been able uh with some with some listener help to be able to go look the week before, look the week after, look on Sunday the ninth, and verify through the local TV listings and a lot of other resources that in fact there was a brand new episode of Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero airing at seven p.m. Central Time on Wednesday May fifth in West Memphis Arkansas. There's there's no question that that happened, but it was it was a little tougher than you'd think because you know just little keys get thrown in. Like I said, you. You look up at IMDb and it says there was no episode that week. So that just causes us to have to look deeper and find the actual answer, which is what we do with everything in this case.
1: Okay, and listener Liz wants to know, did no one pull the phone records for Damian, the Sanders, Jesse, Dominic, and Holly? Ingoing and outgoing calls are a pretty strong confirmation of alibi, in her opinion. What do you think, Bob? Do you think they should have pulled some phone records? Yeah, but we run into
0: this in and you know, we've worked a lot of cases from the nineties and we we run into this a lot where police officers will say that they can't get local phone records. Only long distance was you know were itemized. But it, it seems it seems as though on the phone bills only the long distance is itemized. But uh listener Don McElaney, who was engineer extraordinary from Texas and also a very good researcher did some research and found out that he actually pulled up and i couldn't tell you what they are and pulled up the specs of the type of system that was run through the phone lines in 1993 in west memphis and said that they absolutely could have obtained those phone records but it would what it would require is a subpoena to the phone company to get them and so you know i think that when we run into based on what don is saying what we run into with these officers back then in the 90s saying, you know, we just we can't get local records, is if we pull the phone bill, those records aren't on there. They'd have to dig a little deeper to actually get a log. But neither side did it. You know, you can't even cite West Memphis PD for not doing it. I mean, I do. I think they should have, but so should the defense. Everyone, both should have. No one did. Uh, and just like they also didn't, we don't have any record of, LG Hollingsworth's time card from where he went to work. I mean, this case was a cluster. It just there just was not done properly. I know that, of course, sounds insulting to the West Memphis PD, and I certainly have my problems with them. But a lot of it, I think, is just they've never dealt with anything like this before. I don't think they were. I don't think they intended to do things wrong. I think they just didn't. Everything from the even look look at the crime scene. You know, when they found the bodies, you know, their instinct says get in there and get these bodies out. But what should have happened is they should have immediately dammed up the water and drained it out to preserve the crime scene, get the you know, get the exact position the bodies were in, look for evidence before tromping through the crime scene to find the other bodies, uh, because it was in fact a recovery at that point. They obviously knew the boys were dead, but again, that's not. I've said this before. I don't fault them for that. There's an emotional response when you pull an eight-year-old out of a out of a ditch like that, and you know, they're, you're just gonna you're gonna get them out of there, I guess. But it was it was done incorrectly, and so was this. The phone record should have been pulled, um, but again, the defense had the same opportunity to do it. They didn't do it either, so we just don't know on either side. I don't know if that's even possible if someone uh, were to subpoena the phone company now. If they would I doubt they would even have records still from 25 years ago, but they would have had them then.
1: And then along those lines, listener Tony had a point about. Damien or his family looking into bank account details for the day of the murders or even the receipt from the pharmacy for Damien's medication.
0: Yeah, I recall seeing that post and I have a hunch that that's why uh, Pam Hutchison moved the date of the pharmacy pickup to the next day. You know, when when, when they interviewed her, she had said originally uh, that interview on the 12th, I think, or maybe the 17th, I think it was the 12th, but she had said that, you know, they dropped the uh, the prescription off at the pharmacy and picked it up the next day, and then later she says, "No, we picked the prescription up that afternoon." And I always wondered, you know, why that changed because whether it wasn't significant, you know, if someone's innocent, they don't really know what time the murders were or what time they're supposed to be accounting for, which is one of those indications of truth when we're looking at, you know, people that Damien Echols' evolving alibi is is what people have pointed out, and it does, as Ice pointed out, he, he changed his story a little, a little bits and changed times. From interview to interview, but the actual killer knows exactly when the ki- when the murders happened and knows what time he needs to account for. You know, so Daming saying he was at the Sanders, you know, he originally said he was at the Sanders. I think from three to five, uh, and then he moved it back to he maybe it was later. It was five to six or wherever he said it was still. But when the reality was, he was actually there according to the other witnesses at exactly seven, which is when the murders are occurring. But there's a pretty good indication that Damien didn't know when the murders were occurring. He didn't know what time he needed to account for. My point being, we go back to this receipt, the trip to the pharmacy. Really, the trip to the pharmacy is irrelevant, it, you know, whether they picked up the next day or picked up at 4 o'clock. It wasn't during the time of the murders. The boys were alive and well still at that time. But they didn't know that. You know, and It's important only for the sake of credibility of the statement. When we're looking at the, you know her statement as a whole, is she telling the truth? Is she ever times correct? And it would appear that she got it wrong, and I wonder if she hadn't looked at a receipt or something, and that's how she ended up changing it to the next morning, or excuse me, the, the later that day.
1: Listener Brooke mentions Damien has a pretty solid alibi for the day of the murders. She says how the jury at Damien's trial overlooked this is beyond her, which I think is a good point. Adding to this, Jennifer writes, And since the Miss Kelly confession didn't come into the Damien Eccles jason Baldwin trial, Peretti was able to offer his opinion that the time of death for the boys was between 1 and 5 a.m. And further on the subject, Matt says at Damien's trial, the prosecution said Damien had no alibi because for some reason they believed the murders occurred much later, even as late as 1 a.m. He says he thinks the timing is nonsense. And once you assert the time of the murders to 7 or 8 p.m., it's hard to see how Damien was found guilty. So, Bob, what do you think of the jury overlooking Damien's alibi at trial?
0: Well... When you put all of those listeners' comments together, they they asked their own question in the fact that the jurors didn't hear that Damien did have an alibi, because they had the Sanders coming up and saying that Damien was at their house. You know, his alibi was that he was at their house at seven o'clock at night. But Frank Peretti got on the stand and said the time of death was between one and five a.m., so that seven o'clock at night was completely irrelevant. And you know, the only, the, the reason they got arrested was because of the confession of Jesse Miss Kelly who said that it happened in the early evening. But since Ms. Kelly didn't testify exactly like they said, the jury never heard that either. So the prosecution presented a case that this murder happened at 1 to 5 a.m. based on what Dr. Peretti told them, which completely blows Jesse Ms. Kelly's confession out of the water. It, it just completely makes it false if it was true. I, by the way, don't agree with Dr. Peretti. But, you know, if, if he's right, Ms. Kelly's confession can be thrown out with the bathwater, but the jury never heard Miss Kelly's confession. So it's like we had mentioned a couple episodes ago, you know, the prosecution crafts their, their case, you know, and so does the defense. They, you know, they they, they put their building blocks together and they craft a, a flowing narrative that the jury's going to understand. They put the parts in that make sense and leave the parts out that don't. And in this case, I don't think that the prosecutors had any idea that Peretti was going to say 1 to 5 a.m. It wasn't Fogelman who drew that out of him. It was the defense attorneys mm-hmm. in Cross. And he said that he didn't know, that he wasn't able to make a determination. He couldn't do it. And they kept pressing and pressing and pressing. And finally, he said, OK, well, based on what I think happened, uh, or based on the you know the evidence that I have and lividity and things, I would say somewhere between 1 and 5 a.m., at perhaps as late as 7 a.m. It was the time of death. And so that wasn't the, the, that's not something Fogelman did. That just that just got brought out and crossed. But really, I think that had a big part in the convictions, because, like I said, the alibis meant nothing. Who cares if Jason Baldwin was mowing his uncle's lawn in the afternoon? Who cares if Damien Eccles was at the Sanders house during nine oh two and o' at 7 p.m.? It doesn't matter because the murders, according to Peretti, didn't occur until several hours later. Uh, And it also, when, you know, Narlene Hollingsworth gets on the stand and says that she sees Damien walking down the service road at 930 at night, you know, that's at least closer to the time of death, he said. But really, even that doesn't quite add up if they're already muddy and the boys didn't die until hours later. But, yeah, that's that's how the jury overlooked it. They didn't hear it. They heard the time of death was in the middle of the night. So it didn't matter where he was at seven o'clock.
1: Okay, these are some really interesting thoughts, but I want to stop you right there. We're going to take a quick break here from our sponsor and then we'll get back to it. All right, Roger has two questions. He writes, the conclusion of the episode was a little confusing. He says, in Gail Sharp's testimony at trial, he hears her say she filed her taxes and she got her W-2, but didn't hear that the date was May the 5th that this happened. Can you clarify how you know that Gail Sharp won her jackpot on May 5th?
0: Yeah, so, first of all, I think she had some of her terminology wrong. Usually what happens at a casino when you win a large jackpot is they will immediately then and there give you not a W-2. But a 1099 form, uh, and that's just that's just reporting that you won that money to the IRS. I guess we have to take some, you know, a bit of a leap there because it wasn't entered into evidence. But the reason that she knows it's May fifth is because it sounded to me as though she went and looked at that 1099 for ten thousand dollars, and it was on May fifth because it would be dated that day when when she got it, uh, and also the you know the the prosecution didn't challenge that. Uh, they all just kind of let it lie, so that's why it was significant. Because based on the context of her testimony, she had a tax form that showed that she had won ten thousand dollars on May fifth. But it got it got convoluted because she said it was you know a W two, and she talked about money being held out and all that stuff. Uh, but it would, a W two is for an employee, uh, so it would have been a ten ninety nine. And again, they would they'll and they'll hand you that tax form right then and there at the casino when you win that amount of money.
1: And the second question is, how does that $10,000 jackpot directly help Damien's alibi?
0: Well, like I said, this it's all about the preponderance of all the evidence. Like I said earlier in the episode, we, we work out in concentric circles. You know, it's its not particularly important what a suspect says, because they may very well, in fact, be lying if they're guilty. So you, you look for corroborating evidence. And then, and then you look even beyond that. So Damien never said, I was at the Sanders house at 7 p.m., he has times different and more time about talking on the phone, but for us, I'm looking at what are other people that are further disconnected from him saying about where he was at, and, and can we corroborate any of that? So you know, it, you know the, the leap goes from Pam and Michelle and Joe all saying they were at the Sanders house. So then we could go to the Sanders, and then we have Jennifer Sanders saying, "Yes, they were there. it was May fifth, uh, it was Wednesday night now 2 and0 was on. So then, and my sister was across the street. So then we say, okay, let's go across the street. Oh, and, and backtracking a second, Jennifer says that Pam left a note for her mom. Pam said the same thing. Uh, but then we go across the street, and we say, or her sister was over there. Did you see them over there? She said, yes, they were over there. I didn't get up and walk across the street because 902 and I was about to start. I was with my cousin Meredith. Then we look, what does cousin Meredith say? Cousin Meredith says, yes, I remember, I looked out, I saw them, I didn't see, she you know, she says, and, and this is one of those things I was talking about earlier, both Stacy and uh, Meredith say they didn't see Michelle when she went over there. These are small items that are indicators that someone is telling the truth. Typically, when someone is lying and fabricating a story like this, it's perfect. You know, they, they know every detail. And, and again, I'll reference back to Narlene Hollingsworth. Oh, we saw her. It was definitely Dominique. She had black pants and flowers, and I know it was her clothes because I saw her in that two days earlier. And she was muddy, and they were coming from this direction. Every detail is perfect. Whereas, you know, the the Sanders, Stacy, and then Meredith McKay both say I didn't. I never saw Michelle. I saw Damien, but I didn't see his sister Michelle. Which we may think is a conflict with the other statements, but really it adds some credibility because they they did say they were walking in the door when they looked out. So, I mean, Michelle could have just already have walked through the door. Uh, but they weren't willing to say that's what happened. They weren't willing to say Michelle was there because neither of them actually saw Michelle. And that's a good indicator of truth. But so as, as we go through them, and then, you know, Meredith says that she is, you know, she remembers 90210 was starting, so it had to be around 7 o'clock on, a, on Wednesday night. Uh, and then her mother, same thing, she remembers she saw them over there. Uh, she wasn't sure on the time. Her her time stamp was more about her husband coming home from work. And then, you know, as I mentioned earlier, and in, 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 we actually had to pause this because I had a meeting and come back. And in that time, I was doing a little more research into the Ricky McKay thing. And it really is puzzling. Like I said, the the article in the newspaper just lists him as Officer McKay. And in other places he's listed as Officer McKay. And you assume he's a cop, but he is putting the, car, the bikes into an animal control vehicle. Um, looking a little deeper, in in Mara Leverett's book, which is probably the most well-researched book on the case, she specifically says West Memphis police officer McKay, at Ricky McKay. Uh, and then also The Blood of Innocence, same thing. Now, she could be wrong, and, I, and I, I think probably she is. I don't know why a cop would be putting bikes into the animal control vehicle. I've had someone tell me directly that this person absolutely did not work for the police department. So, I think that... Maybe Marl Lever got it wrong uh, and maybe made the same kind of assumption that, that I had made when I said, you know, he's wearing a uniform and they call him officer, that he's a cop. But I still, I I need to dig a little deeper and find documentation uh, one way or another to, to prove or disprove whether he was actually a member of the police department or if he was a dog catcher. Um, it's really neither here nor there, but it... Well, it is a little bit in the fact that it just adds more weight to the the his daughter and wife's testimony. But getting back to what we were talking about, so so everybody confirms that so now we've got all these timestamps around Beverly Hills nine oh two one oh. We've got now that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people that all say they saw him there and relate that back to nine oh two one oh. That's when we then go to the newspaper and say, Was nine oh two one oh actually on? We confirm it was. Then we look at, okay, is there any other way to corroborate it? Well, if they stopped by and left a note, then uh, Mrs. Sanders should know about that. And, of course, they interview her, and she said, yeah, the next day we were at the casino. It was this night, and the next day I found the note that was left in my purse by Pam. Uh, And so then it comes to really, in a lot of ways, you could just leave it at that. That's pretty solid. But then, well, let's make sure the casino trip, that's another timestamp that we can put on this actually happened on that day so she says yes and i remember it was the first week of may it was a wednesday night and my husband got his disability check on the third and it was right after that that still puts us right back on may 5th but then we move further out to the Dewitts and see what they have to say and of course they both say yes we all went to the casino we think it was a wednesday night which again is another indicator of truth in the fact that they're not willing to say it was may 5th i know that because they don't know and no one would they just know that it was on a Wednesday night, they think, uh, and it was around that time of year, and they all went together, but that's all they really know. So then how do we corroborate that? We go to the logs from the casino, which the logs presented a problem because the numbers were crossed out and then they didn't add up, uh, but they seemed to indicate that he wasn't there with three. He was, in fact, at the casino on the 5th, but not with the Sanders, which, as I mentioned on the show, would be a hell of a coincidence possible. Uh, But then we look at, there's dinner reservations also in that file that they made for four at the casino restaurant that night. That further uh, solidifies the fact that the trip did, in fact, happen on May 5th. Uh, And then it's a long answer to your short question, but as we then track that down, we get to uh, Mr. Sanders, who says that he knows that that night that he went to the casino with the DeWitts. He ran into Gail Poindexter, actually Gail Sharp. And she had won a $10,000 jackpot and they were there when it happened and they talked to her. So then that is why that's important because then we go to Gail. She says, yes, I won $10,000. Yes, I saw the Sanders there on the night I won it. And I have the tax receipt right here to prove that it happened on May 5th. So that's why it's important. It's just another nail in the coffin, so to speak. Uh, in, in solidifying that that timing was accurate, that all of this did in fact happen on May 5th. And then we have, of course, what we mentioned at the beginning of the show, the fact that, you know, we, we still have the fact that Damien's mom says that Joe had moved out the night before. And what I was, this is why now that we lay all that out again here, it, it's a problem, but it, it doesn't supersede all of the other evidence. The preponderance of the evidence all indicates that this occurrence happened on May 5th, the night of the murders, at 7 p.m. The only issue we have is the one statement by Pam who said that Joe had moved out the night before. But again, we don't know if he came back the next day. We don't know if she had the wrong day. We don't know what happened there. But we, we can't let that one statement, it doesn't discard all of the other evidence. It just doesn't.
1: Okay, and let's go back to the Splash Casino incident really quick here. Listener Rosie says, If it was the Sanders' first time at the Splash Casino, is it possible they signed up for a card themselves, leaving their friends Rose and Don to only sign themselves in? This explains the plus one guest linked to Don's card. Perhaps the employee simply forgot to list the Sanders on the registration sheet after they signed up. This would also explain some of the extra guest numbers, 26, when only 22 were listed on the sheet. At trial, Randy said that they had made subsequent visits to the casino, so presumably would have needed a card.
0: Yeah, I think that that is possible. And also, I don't know what the procedure is there, you know, why they had to sign in as a guest. I mean, typically, you know, I've spent quite a bit of time in a lot of casinos. Anybody can just go in, but you have like a player's card that you accumulate points on. that can get you things like comps, like, you know, if you, you play blackjack for three hours with your card in, you might be able to go get a sandwich for free or comp from that. And then the gold card, Mr. DeWitt had said that he got the gold card because of some big jackpot that he had won. Um, And that typically will give someone, if they have a higher level card like that, other privileges, such as, you know, they can go into, you know, I think Mike, Mike, we're both familiar with the Four Winds Casino in Buffalo, Michigan near us.
1: Oh, yeah, we are. Yeah. (laughs) And
0: uh, and they had, I don't remember the name of it because I never did it. I was never there enough. But I had a friend who was it was like the copper card or something like that. But if, if you had played so many hours and, and, and put so much time in on the tables, you got a copper card, which would be like this gold card. And when you had that, you could always go into the special lounge where they had appetizers and free drinks and things like that when you were at the casino. So I think that the gold card would be something like that. I don't think it's like for admittance into the casino. So that's part of the problem is we don't really know what the procedure was. But yeah, I mean, typically if you go to a casino, one of the first things you're going to do is sign up for one of those, some kind of a player card uh, so that you can get some benefits, some kickbacks from the money that you're gambling. So the Sanders very well could have just gotten their own card. Don DeWitt may have just not signed them in as a guest. And remember, it's also the first time he ever used that card. So maybe he didn't really know that it was necessary to do that or just didn't, or there could be an error there. there there's a lot of things that, that are just we don't know the answers to uh, and again, that's why uh Gail Poindexter's testimony is so important in that in that tax receipt because that is another connecting memory marker that puts the whole thing together because as as all of you I've sort of learned anybody that went through the exercise that I asked you to in the last episode, you learned that memory is a very fluid thing you know and it it's it's just not if there's no real important items sticking out in your mind our our memories will get mixed up, and then there's also a phenomenon. Uh, where our brains will fill in gaps in our memory. You know, If we remember little bits and pieces, your brain will will just fill that in and will actually create false memories by no fault of your own. And it's, it's a common occurrence that happens all the time. And that's why you know a lot of people like to hang on every little word and be like, look, a person lied here or they changed their story here. And a lot of times really all that's happened is it's just a memory issue. Uh, and that's why in order to do a thorough investigation, we can't just look at what Damien said. We've got, to, we've got to work our way out and find, is there any actual corroborating evidence as to where he was at? And in this case, there certainly seems to be.
1: Okay, and listener Laura wants to know, is there any chance you might speak with Dominie? She says, I understand that her alibi checked out, but I'd still be interested to hear her recollections from the day and evening of the murders. I'd especially like to know what Dominie has to say about L.G. Hollingsworth.
0: I have not made any contact with Dominie yet. I'm certainly willing to interview her. I think it would be interesting. At at this point, it's really, in in my opinion, the evidence is really leaning towards Damien was nowhere near the crime scene when it happened, which would make him innocent of the crime, which would mean all of the information around him is pretty irrelevant at at this point, if that's true, if it's accurate. So I don't know how much Dominique would have to add other than just be interesting to hear from her. But yeah, it's not that I've ruled out and you know I don't know if she'd be willing to talk to me, but um I, I think I've read somewhere that people have reached out to her and, and tried to get her to do interviews and stuff and she's not really interested, but it's certainly something we'll
1: look into. Lori says, I'm curious how you guys decide which topic to cover when. I remember Bob saying that he was going to cover the case as the investigation went, but we haven't heard about Jesse yet, but we have heard about Damien's alibi. Not being snarky, just curious about how you decide.
0: Yeah, so we're we're trying to go in order in the way that the police investigated things, and like I said in other episodes, we're investigating the investigation at this point. And so what we learned is at the very early onset of the investigation, within 24 hours of the bodies being found, the police are knocking on Damien Echols' door. He's, he was suspect number one from the very beginning. Uh, and there were lots of other suspects and lots of other investigations happening, but Damien was was targeted as a suspect immediately. And so we're starting by working through the investigation into Damien, uh, and then part of that which should be done, uh, and, and take note in this episode how long the police waited to try to confirm Damien's alibi. You know, they waited until three months after he was already arrested to then contact the Sanders and the DeWitts and, and find out if he has an alibi. And they said he did, and they continued on with their with their case. That should have all been done well before they arrested him. They should have tracked down his alibi first. So what we're doing is the way, going through their order, uh, as as far as the suspects they work through, but in the way the the investigation should have been done properly. So Damien says this is where he's at. Let's check and see if he was actually there. Because if you know someone is somewhere other than the crime scene, they're not a suspect anymore, and you move on to another suspect. And in in this case, they they never got to looking in the direction that they should have you know they 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 decided and in my opinion wrongly assumed when they you know pulled those boys out of the water that you know this was the satanic ritual killing torture all these things that you know i believe the medical evidence really indicates did not actually happen and so they were looking for a monster you know they were they were looking for the type of monster that would do something like that and the only way they could in their minds explain that was you know it's it's the devil right and so they go after the wrong people and and you know you get false hunches and false leads but a good investigator will be willing to back off and start over when there's evidence presented that shows them they've got the wrong person and in this case they just they were never interested in finding out if damien had an alibi but so that's why we we're, we're doing damien's alibi right now is let's see if he's the prime suspect let's see if he could have done it and it's, you know, and then this will make people mad. People will say you're biased and all that, but I, sorry, I'm not biased. I'm investigating. And this is where the evidence is leading us right now. But so then the next thing that happens is originally it was just Damien. And the only Jason Baldwin that was mentioned was the other big mean Jason Baldwin. And so just to kind of foreshadow what, what kind of happens next is uh, there's another witness that comes in that has some information, and they lead the police to Jesse Miss Kelly, and then Jesse Miss Kelly leads the police back to Damien and Jason. So that's the order we'll be going in, because that's the order that these uh, individuals kind of appear throughout the case. Is you know, we'll be working after the, the next Damien episode that will air on Sunday. That again we recorded last week. We will move on then to how the police got to Jesse. Then we'll work on Jesse, and then from there, how Jesse led them back to Jason Baldwin, and we'll move on from there. So so there, there is, it may not seem like there's random reason to what we're doing, but there, there is. We're just going in the order that we think that is most logical to to complete the narrative in a way that seems to flow.
1: All right, Bob, that's going to be it for this week. But before we end the show, I wanted to come back to what you said earlier about indications of truthfulness in the investigation.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, so, what I was referring to, and I, I briefly touched on some of this uh, when we talk about Meredith McKay and Stacey Sanders both saying that they didn't see Michelle across the street, that they can't confirm or deny that Michelle was there because they didn't see her. You know, again, it's, it's not willing to take that leap any further than what they actually witnessed. And in in again, the same is true of the DeWitts, where they were never willing to say this happened on May 5th. All they would say is they think it was a Wednesday and that you know, it had occurred about that time of year. We already talked about that. But, but another big one is Damien's father, Joe. You know, so if anybody's going to lie for him, you'd think it would be his parents. But Joe was the only one that said, I can't say for sure that Damien was with us that night. Uh, and and some people would look at that and say, see, he might not have been there. Well, again, the preponderance of the evidence indicates that he, in fact, was there. But Joe not willing to say that he was because he just can't remember is another indicator of him telling the truth because he's, he's legitimately, it's a sign and an indicator that he's trying to truthfully relay what he, in fact, does remember. And he would love to say Damien was definitely there, But in reality, he can't remember it, and therefore, he's not going to lie. And so the fact that he leaves that out, that that he says he doesn't remember if he was there, like I said, is a a really good indicator that he is, in fact, telling the truth. And, And there's a lot of that. Read through these statements. And again, compare them to some of the statements that don't necessarily ring true and how they don't leave anything out. And they fill in all the gaps. You know, you think about Narlene. You know, going on the stand and then expanding her story uh, of of the sighting of the of the little boys, of the victims, you know, and now Sombra's in the car and she says, that's Stevie Branch. I, I know that's him because I went to school and and just his incredibly detailed response to how she knows for a fact that that was Stevie Branch when we know for a fact she didn't know it was Stevie Branch because of her previous statement. Uh, and and her statement is also lacking any kind of sensory or emotional responses which are other indicators of truth. And when someone is trying to deceive you, you know, they're not gonna remember feelings or things like that because they did not actually experience the event.
2: Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer. And all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month, And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the -the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. And Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.